Well, it's a bit longer of a service today, um, but I trust that's okay with you, because that's why you're here, is to learn. Uh, You're here to be encouraged, to be corrected, to be uh, built up in our most holy faith. And uh, I hope that today is an edifying time for each one of us. We're looking at a very serious issue in Scripture today. It's 1 Corinthians 5. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, finishing that chapter today, talking about the removal of a member of a local church, how one is to be removed from the fellowship. And uh, it's very important that you pay attention, it's very important that you learn and understand this topic, because this could be any of us, this could be you, this could be me. This could be any one of us, and we are to approach it with that sobriety. We are to approach it with reverence and fear, knowing that God purchased us by His own blood. We were bought with the price, and His church is to be holy, and we are to consider it in that way. But let's pray together before we get into the text today. Father, we do thank You so much for what You've given us today. For the breath in our lungs, we are not our own gods. We are your creatures, and we serve you. Because we've been redeemed by Christ, we are servants of the Most High God, and we ask that today we would understand more about you and more about ourselves, more about your church, that we would honor you in the way we are to honor you. Lord, I ask that though I am a fallen creature. I'm a sinner by nature and by choice. I ask that I would not get in the way of your text this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people and that we would be unified on these things. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 5. We didn't get very far, but let's uh, look at the first two verses again together where Paul wrote to this church and said, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife, that a man had in a relationship his stepmother. Verse 2, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So there's a reminder of where we are in the church in Corinth, what the situation was, what was going on among the Christians there. And there was no doubt about what was going on. Paul writes to them saying, it's been reported and it's clear there is no way to look at this that really minimizes the issue. But this is clearly what has happened. A man has taken his father's own wife. The Corinthians, who, of course, were already arrogant, were already puffed up in and of themselves, these lovers of philosophy, lovers of their own theories, lovers of pragmatism, with their puffed up, arrogant heads, they were more arrogant through this issue. Perhaps they had tried to address the man, perhaps they had had a conversation, perhaps they had started to walk down the path of correcting this, but either way, they had gone far astray. And they weren't dealing with the issue in the way they should have. Instead of mourning the issue, they had become even more arrogant through it. 
And so Paul, as an apostle, is writing to them, and he tells them that he has made a certain judgment. It's clear to him what is going on. It's clear to him what needs to be done. And that's where we pick up in verse 3. Paul says, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul certainly had in mind the teaching of our Lord, the teaching of Christ that we looked at last week in Matthew 18. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus with the disciples lays out the steps that we are to go through as God's children, as God's family, when we are addressing a sin issue. In Matthew 18, we are told if your brother sins, you are to go to him first one-on-one in private. This is how God's children are to interact. You are to first go to him one-on-one in private and tell him his sin. And if he has heard you, you have won your brother. You've won your sister. You move forward together in peace and in joy. Now, if he doesn't listen, if your brother doesn't listen to you, it says, Jesus teaching, you are to take two or three with you, because by two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. You don't have to put that up there yet, Joseph. You're, you're getting ahead of me. You're, you're, you're giving a spoiler to the story here. Uh, <laughs> You're supposed to take two or three with you. And if He hears you at that point, if He hears the witness of each of you calling Him to repentance, you all move forward in peace together. Now, if He refuses even to hear them, Jesus says, tell it to the church. That's step three. Tell it to the church. And at that point, if He repents, you can all move forward together in peace and enjoy in the gospel. But if He won't even listen to the church, Jesus teaches. He is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If he continues in his sin, refusing to repent, refusing to listen to the people God has placed in his life, at that point he is to be considered as a Gentile or tax collector. Paul understood this teaching of Jesus. Paul's teaching here isn't disconnected from that teaching of Jesus. And we do have the great promise of Christ that you've already seen on the screen, Matthew 18, 20. The great promise that Jesus gives us in these situations, we can be comforted because where two or three have gathered in Jesus' name, He is there in the midst of them. It's a great promise. And look at our text today, verse 4. Look what Paul says, when He is there with them in spirit, who else is there with them? Well, the Lord Jesus. It's with the power of the Lord Jesus. They are gathered together to conduct these matters. Jesus is there, and His power is there, where two or three are gathered, even to address an issue as serious as this. And this process is to be taken very seriously. Though one may profess Christ, though there may be someone even among us who has a testimony of the gospel who is saying, yes, I'm a Christian too, I confess Jesus. If that person's lifestyle is that of an unbeliever, we are to address that person according to Scripture as Jesus has instructed. And if we go through these steps and that person still chooses to live like an unbeliever, that person is to be treated 
and considered as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's a sad state. That's why the process should be taken very seriously. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians that when that person then is treated in such a way, that person is being delivered to Satan. What a statement. Look at that in verse 5. Paul says that he's decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. This is not the first time Paul has used this type of phrasing in his letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul writes uh, to this young pastor about these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he said that Hymenaeus and Alexander had made shipwreck of their faith. So they were believers, they had a testimony, they had a confession of the gospel, but they had made shipwreck of their faith. And Paul says, I've chosen to deliver them to Satan, to hand them over to Satan, that they would learn not to blaspheme, that they would learn something through that handing over to Satan, namely that they wouldn't blaspheme. The purpose that we see here in verse 5 is being handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh and for the salvation of of the Spirit, that a person would be turned over to Satan with the view of, with the objective to be, that person's flesh being destroyed. Now, we know that Satan can do some incredibly harmful things in people's lives. You think back to the story of Job, it's a very famous story in the Bible, and we know that God gave Satan permission to affect Job to really impact Job's life, to, in many ways, destroy his life. Though what was most precious to Job, of course, remained, his relationship with his God. We can think about times in the Gospels, uh, one time in particular, where Jesus told Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. Wow. Satan's desire, his, his desire as he's free to roam the earth, as God has given him that freedom, as he has the, is the prince and the power of the age, he's prowling around. He has a desire to sift disciples of Christ. It's his desire. And if one is handed over to Satan, destruction of his flesh may occur. Handing someone over to their sin, to their realm of their sin, to the lifestyle of their sin, is in itself an act of judgment. This is modeled by God in Romans 1, where God is talking about the Gentiles. It, it seems like, for me, all roads lead back to Romans 1. I don't know if you've picked up on that yet. I talk about it a lot. But the, the Gentiles who know that God exists, it's evident within them because God has made it evident to all people that He exists. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They replace the truth with a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And it says three times, verses 24, 26, and 28, that God hands them over to their sin. If you were wondering how today is God's wrath seen in the world, His, His judgment where He's angry against sin, why isn't God doing anything about it? How is it seen in the world today? I look around and I don't see God's judgment. Well, Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed today by this handing over. It's His act of judgment against the world that people would be handed over to their sin. So this handing someone over to Satan, handing someone over to their sin, it's an act of judgment. And the goal, again, for handing a fellow believer, it's important to remember, we're talking about someone in the church, the goal of handing a fellow believer over to Satan, delivering someone over to Satan, 
is for the destruction of his flesh. And the desire of the church through this is for the unrepentant sin to cease. What's our desire? If we got to a point as a fellowship where one is not repenting, though the church has warned him, and what's our goal if we remove that person from our midst to deliver that person to Satan? Our goal, our desire should be for that unrepentant sin to cease, to be made void, to be destroyed, for that act to be repented of. And we believe that as sin is embraced in a believer's life, and the church releases that person over to his or her sin, we believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't leave that person. If that person has been born again, if that person has been saved, it's not like the Holy Spirit leaves. But we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, Ephesians says. Therefore, in our thinking, what we consider as we hand someone over, well, we consider what the Holy Spirit is doing in that person's life. Think of the prodigal son. He requested his inheritance and wanted to leave, and he left. He was disconnected from his family. And it says in Luke 16 that he went out and enjoyed loose living. That's the phrase it uses in the New American Standard. He enjoyed his loose living. And then it says he lost everything. He lost it all. And he found himself with the pigs. There he was among the swine. And then it uses this astounding phrase, he came to his senses, and he went back home. When someone is handed over to their sin, removed from the church, given over to Satan, our hope, our goal is that that person would be destroyed. Not that necessarily God would take that person's life, but that that person would be overwhelmed by the sin. And that that person would come to his senses, he would come to himself. That's our desire as a church through discipline, is for one to come to his senses. Now, it is possible that Paul had death in mind specifically. Turn with me to chapter 11, same book, chapter 11. Paul is talking to them about communion, observing the Lord's Supper. And he says, down in verse 29, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, verse 29, he says, For he who eats and drinks, this is, again, in the context of communion, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you are dead. It's a euphemism there for sleep. He's not meaning they're napping. Okay? He is saying that's why a number of you have died. It's because you have eaten and you have drunk judgment on yourself for not rightly considering the Lord's table. So, Paul may have had the metaphorical flesh in mind when he said, I'd chosen to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, meaning his sin, the pattern of sin. Perhaps he had in mind his actual body that the Lord, because of the seriousness of the sin, that the Lord would actually take him home. It could be either one, but we know that God is in control, and our hope that while a person still has breath in his lungs, our hope for our brother or our sister is that that person would be humble before God, 
That person would care about holiness. That person would care about what God desires for him or for her. That's how the Corinthians should have been thinking. The Corinthians should have had their minds there. Holiness first in God's church. The purity of God's church. But they were boasting instead of mourning. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. They had continued on in their boasting. They didn't reckon with God's holiness. They didn't consider the purity of the church. And so God, uh, so God, through Paul, in the following verses, the rest of the chapter, is going to really hammer the point home. There are clarifications made for this church and how they are to think. And he uses the illustration in verses 6 through 8 about lumps of dough being affected by leaven or yeast. It says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right, so some basic points that you need to know before you can really start to understand this passage is that dough is affected by yeast. <laughs> so, uh, if there are any bakers in, in the room, you know this. Uh, my wife loves to bake bread. She makes great sourdough bread and cuts little designs in it and everything. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and dough, flour, water, salt, whatever else you want to put in there, mixed together is affected by the presence of yeast. Even just a little bit of yeast will spread through the whole lump and affect the whole lump of dough. Now, in this day, when the Corinthians were living, they didn't go down to the store and get that little red star package of instant dry yeast. What's in mind here is much more like that sourdough starter, that coveted sourdough starter that perhaps some of you have enjoyed before and then lost it and never got it back. Or maybe you have one that's been going on for generations. In San Francisco, I know that's a pretty big thing. But that's what's in mind here is a pinch would be broken off of a lump of dough before it was baked and that would be saved for the next lump and that yeast would affect the next lump of dough. They would just work it in to each and every lump going forward. And this uh, sourdough starter, you could say, this leaven, represented sin in this illustration. The reason why he's using this is because it's an effective illustration to talk about how sin affects the local church body. So just as yeast that's found in a starter or a, or a dough that's held back, just as that yeast affects the whole lump that it's mixed into, unrepentant sin in the church will affect the whole church. Sin that is continued on in, sin that is a behavioral pattern that has no regard for God's Word, sin that is unrepentant, blatant, just clearly wrong, affects the whole church. And Paul tells them something profound in verse 7. To give them a theological backing, he says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. And switching to the present tense, he says, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been, past tense, sacrificed. He reminds them that Christ 
is our Passover lamb. This is the only reference in all of the New Testament that points to Christ as the Passover lamb. If you've been a Christian for some time, perhaps uh, it's just always been in your thinking that uh, you know, the Passover was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do when Jesus came. He fulfilled the Passover, and He's our capital P, capital L, Passover lamb. And that's true. But did you know this is the only reference to it? Uh, so it's a precious reference. You can do well to remember this verse, that Jesus is our once-for-all slain lamb. And it's who we are. When you start reading verse 7, Paul says to them, clean out that old leaven that you may be a new lump. <laughs> clean out the leaven. Take it out of the dough so that you may be made new. But then, just in case they start to hear that as works righteousness, just in case they start to hear that as this is something you do to earn your salvation, to earn your justification, he quickly says, just as you are in fact unleavened. You have been made new in Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you've been born again, God has already done that work of removing the leaven from your heart because He has imputed to you the righteousness of Christ. You're not considered as a sinner who is just defined by this sinful behavior, this rebellious behavior, but instead you are considered as pure and righteous or in terms of bread, unleavened. You are unleavened in God's sight. That's your identity as a Christian. And for those who were familiar with the Jewish celebration of Passover, Paul brings this up. And he says, as they remembered Yahweh's redeeming Israel at the Passover, they are now to remember Jesus' final sacrifice once for all. Just as the lamb blood was put on the doorpost when the Israelites were in Egypt, just as that lamb blood was put on the doorpost. So you, as a Christian, have the blood of the capital L lamb covering your hearts. The final sacrifice of Christ, His propitiation, His satisfaction of God's wrath, removes your guilt, and you are pure and holy because of His work. But in Israel, it wasn't just about the Passover. It wasn't just about the event of the Passover, and they wouldn't just remember that year after year. There was actually a seven-day feast that followed the Passover, and that feast was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I want you to turn with me all the way back to Exodus. So keep your finger here, but turn with me to the second book of the Bible in chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 14. I want you to see what they were instructed to do in Israel. Exodus chapter 12, and find verse 14. This is the feast of unleavened bread. Through Moses, the people were instructed to do this. Verse 14, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And here it is, verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. In the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done to them except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. 
You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the, of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses." That means that in Israel, they were not able to pass down sourdough starters from generation to generation. So all that cool stuff that goes on in uh, San Francisco where they maintain starters for hundreds of years or whatever it is, wasn't happening in Israel. So all the leaven is supposed to be removed from the house. And whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything unleavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning." That was what they were to do, to slay the Passover lamb, to take the blood and to mark their house, and then to observe this seven-day feast of unleavened bread, to get all the leaven out of their house, to not eat anything that had leaven in it. That was what they were instructed to do. And now the fulfillment of this is Christ, the Passover, slain once for all. The blood is applied to you as a Christian, that He has come into your life, caused you to be born again. He has made residence in your heart. And now, for your life, as a set-apart Christian, one who is in the world but not of the world, you are to remove the leaven. You're to live a life set apart for Christ, this sin that permeates every faucet of our lives is to be removed, is to be taken away because of our love for the one who has saved us, because of the love that we have for our great high priest who made a final sacrifice. We are unleavened bread as Christians, and we're to get all the leaven out. We're to seek to remove all the leaven from our lives and our church's life. There are indicatives and imperatives at play here. For those of you who don't remember those rules of grammar, I'll just uh, give you definitions. Indicatives being statements like, you are. It's true that you are this. Put your name in the blank. That's who you are. And the imperative is, now go and do. It's a command. The imperative tells you to do something. And what we see here in 1 Corinthians 5 is that we are unleavened bread, verse 7, right in the middle uh, of the verse. You are, in fact, unleavened. Therefore, because you are, now you should do this. Because you have been made unleavened bread, you should care about any leaven that is trying to sneak into the assembly. Because we are, we should. We should pursue holiness in every area because God has reckoned us as holy. We don't just seek to remove the leaven one week per year, like in Israel, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We don't seek to get rid of sin in our lives once per year during that week. We don't seek to do it just in the context of the assembly, 
just in the church. Let's make sure that the church, you know, has all, all of its P's and Q's minded, and then we'll do whatever we want individually. Neither is the case. But we are to care about all the leaven that might be sneaking in in any context, individually or corporately, because we are, in fact, unleavened. And we are a unified organism. We're a body. You know, we're Christ's body. And we are profoundly affected by one another in ways that we don't understand. We are profoundly affected by each member. And so we need to take sin seriously as it affects all of us. Even a sin, and this is what's popular today in our current culture, cultural conversation, even those sins that may appear to not hurt anyone. Perhaps the man there in Corinth would have said, what do you guys care? I'm not hurting anybody. I'm just living with my stepmother. We just have a, a thing. <laughs> Can you imagine that kind that conversation? But I, you could see, especially in today's context, how someone could say, well, I'm not hurting anybody. What do you mean I'm affecting the church? This is at my house behind closed doors, it, you know, whatever. In fact, there's good evidence to assume that this woman didn't even go to the Corinthian fellowship. She's not addressed in this. The man is talked about as being removed, but not the woman. So perhaps she didn't show up to any of their services. What's the big deal? The reputation of Christ matters, doesn't it? As the church, we are the body of Christ. Here we are walking together by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what are we doing if we're not addressing those things that God hates? What are we doing if we're not addressing the sins that Jesus died for, but instead letting them to continue? Surely, in Corinth, it was known because word got out. Remember what Paul says at the beginning, it was reported. Surely, in Corinth, it was known that that man went to that church, that that man was attending there, and by what everybody could see, he was in good standing. Can't you see how that matters? Can't you see how we should take this seriously? If God sent His Son to the cross for these things, we should consider them very, very seriously. These are serious judgments. And Paul is going to say in this letter that we're going to reign with Christ and even judge the angels. So how much more serious should we take our judgments among each other right now? Look with me at chapter 6, just the very next chapter. Tyler's going to get into this next week. But the first three verses here, look at what Paul says. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? We are to take these judgments very seriously. And if you look at verse 8 in our chapter today, back to chapter 5, verse 8, we are to conduct ourselves in these judgments with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, holiness, care for one another, love, 
Those are to be the driving forces behind our judgments. So we protect the lump of dough by removing the leaven. And to give you another illustration that Paul himself will use later in this letter, we are to protect the body by removing the infection. When there is one in the fellowship who continues to persist in sin unrepentantly, we protect the body of Christ by removing the infected member. Now, Paul, in the rest of the verses of this chapter, verses 9 through 13, he talks about two different things. He talks about our conduct with those who are not Christians and our conduct with those who claim to be Christians who are in our fellowship. So I want to make a quick note about the outsiders, as Paul does here. Starting at verse 9, he says, "'I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters.'" For then you would have to go out of the world. Drop down to verse 12. For what do I have with, or what have I to do, rather, with judging outsiders? Verse 13, those who are outside, God judges. So he's making quick statements, to the point statements about those who are not Christians, not in the church. We are not to discipline them or to judge them in the same way that we do with those in the church. A couple of notes on that. You might notice in verse 9 that Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter, past tense. Well, isn't this 1 Corinthians? What do you mean you wrote to them in your letter? This is the first letter to the Corinthians. Well, this is the second letter to the Corinthians. The first one, God chose not to preserve to His own glory. So there's a previous letter that was written to this church that we don't have by God's good sovereignty. So, just a note on that. Sometimes people will bring that up and say, well, God can't preserve the Bible. He didn't preserve the Bible because, look, there was a letter that was lost. God's sovereign over every letter that's ever been written, okay? Uh, It's not like uh, one letter escaped His sovereignty. God chose not to preserve it for His own glory. And what Paul is talking about here is he clarifies what he wrote in that past letter. He's saying that there is leaven that exists outside of the church lump. There is leaven, sin, that exists outside of the local church lump of dough. And with that leaven, we are to consider it rightly. It's not as though it's in us. It hasn't infected us. It's not a part of us, but it's out there. And we are not to judge out there the same way that we judge in here. There's a difference. When we consider the world, we know from Jesus' teaching, this is John 16, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's business. That's what He's doing. Now, of course, we are instruments in God's hands as we go out to proclaim the gospel, as Tyler reminded us about, but we aren't the ones who affect hearts, and we don't have the same relationship with the world as we do with our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no kindred spirit there. There's no fellowship there. And so we go out, and we can associate with them as long as we recognize who they are and who we are. Very different people. We are in Christ and they are not. God is the one who regenerates them. God is the one who judges them. Verse 13 again, those who are outside, God judges. The world is not under the stewardship of the church. The world is under God's stewardship, not ours. Again, consider the woman, the stepmother that was a part of this relationship. She's not addressed in this letter. 
As far as we know, she wasn't making a confession of Christ, but the man was. He was a so-called brother, and he was to be treated differently. He was to be removed from the church. So we have, as Christians, strict discipline inside the church, not outside the church. And how many separatists have gotten this wrong in generations past? They've flipped it, and they've made strict discipline outside the church that we can't associate with those people because they drink. We can't associate with those people because they go to movie theaters. We can't associate with those people because they dress like that, and I wouldn't be caught dead standing next to those people. But inside the church, it's full of demons, and they won't address it. Let's not flip this. Strict discipline inside the church and free association outside of the church with a proper understanding of who they are and who we are. That's what we're called to do. So we protect the lump by removing the leaven that's inside of it. And that's what Paul goes on to address is how we are to remove a fellow Christian from the church. Very serious. Robert Gramacki writes this, Christians have both the right and the responsibility to judge unrepentant members within their local church. Parents have the right to discipline their own children, but they have no authority to chastise their neighbor's children for the same faults. See that illustration? That makes sense? As much as you might want to chastise those neighbor kids, (laughs) I'm speaking to my neighbors, uh, there isn't a right there that exists, as with your own children. And so Paul writes this, pick up with me in verse 11. He says, but actually, clarifying his letter, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Second half of verse 12, do you not judge those who are within the church? Second half of verse 13, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Lots of things to notice. First is that Paul calls the person a so-called brother. That means someone who is named among the Christians. That's the way it could be translated. One who is named among you as a fellow Christian. Someone who has the same confession of faith as you, a so-called brother. He or she confesses Christ. And since that is the case, since that is who we are considering here, someone in the church with a Christian testimony, there are things to note from that. One is that it's possible for believers to fall into a sinful lifestyle, or I should say willingly walk into a sinful lifestyle with minimal fruit for a period of time. It's possible. It's happened. It will happen again. It's happened to some of you, and it might happen to some of you again. It was happening in Corinth with this so-called brother. And I like that it's so-called I like that it's translated that way because, of course, we don't know that person's heart. At the end of the day, that person might not even be a believer. If that person refuses to repent all the way to his grave, that's not exactly great evidence that that person is a believer. But as that person is living an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle for some period of time, we need to recognize that it can happen to Christians, and only God knows that person's heart. It is our duty as the church to act in accordance with that confession. When it comes to church discipline, we consider church discipline for somebody if that person's a part of the church. 
We don't consider church discipline for somebody who says, yeah, I'm not a Christian. If that person has no testimony of Christ, no personal confession of faith, you can't put that person under church discipline. That person's not a part of the church. And this can get really fuzzy sometimes because there are people who come to the church service who never end up professing Christ, but they like to come and here they are. It happens. Then there are people who come that, yeah, maybe. You know who I'm talking about. You've got someone in mind probably. We just don't know. We would love to know. And then there are people who, with their mouths, profess Christ, and they're not shy about it. But with their lives, they live a very different story. Only God knows their heart. And then there are people, again, we still don't know their heart, but they confess Christ, and they show up, and they serve, and they love Jesus, and they love God's people. And it's evident. The fruit of the Spirit is evident. That's the way it should be. But even one of them could fall back into one of those other categories. And if that person has any sort of confession, any sort of testimony, we treat that person as a Christian and we go through the process of church discipline. In the end, Jesus is the one who's going to sort the wheat and the tares. You know that the tares grow up right alongside the wheat. And we don't know. We don't know. Jesus is the one who's going to sort all that for sure. But if a professing wheat lives like a tear, we have a process for that. That's Matthew 18. And the final step of Matthew 18 is to disassociate. That's Paul's encouragement to this church here. He says in verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, going through living a an unrepentant, sinful life. We are to shun such a person in accordance with the spirit of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. Not to associate with that person. And I've hammered on this before, and I'm going to hammer on it again because this is incredibly important to the whole conversation. It's being presupposed by Paul here that the person under church discipline, the so-called brother, had a desire for that fellowship that the person who was being admonished by the church had a desire to be a part of the church. That's what made it work. That's what made it discipline. If that person didn't have an actual desire in his heart to be with God's people, what does it matter to him if they disassociate from him? It doesn't matter at all. But it's being presupposed that that desire exists, and that's very important. Gordon Fee has written this. I loved this statement, so I want you to hear this paragraph. The great problem with such discipline in most Christian communities in the Western world is that one can simply go down the street to another church. Not only does that say something about the fragmented condition of the church at large, but it also says something about those who would quickly welcome one who is under discipline in another community. Maybe the most significant thing we can learn from this text is how far many of us are removed from a view of the church in which the dynamic of the Spirit was so real that exclusion could be a genuinely redemptive process. Those are strong words. But we have gotten so far removed from the sweetness of fellowship and the way this is supposed to work as we live together and care for one another day by day. That's the New Testament phrase, 
day by day, not Sunday by Sunday, not month by month, day by day. Church discipline wouldn't work for someone who doesn't long for the fellowship. And sometimes when we address someone's sin, when we begin those initial steps of Matthew 18, we might encounter a person who has a, you can't fire me, I quit mentality. You can't put me under church discipline, I'll just leave. Let's go. We'll go find another church. That's not the spirit of the New Testament, my friends. That's not what God has called us to do. Church life is to be much more organic. We're not a business. We don't have contracts. We're not firing and hiring. We don't quit. We're family. And these things are to be considered very seriously. When a person acts this way in their sin, it shows a terrible lack of agape love, a terrible lack of Christian love. That's sad every time. So Paul makes this statement to disassociate, and it's a qualified statement. It's qualified because if the principle was, if anybody is sinning, you need to stop associating with that person. Well, then who would we ever associate with, right? You wouldn't be able to live with yourself. So it's qualified by giving the idea it's someone practicing a sinful lifestyle without regard to God's Word, someone that is to be admonished, someone that has gone on after warnings from the church to to live in sin. That person has forfeited the assurance of the church. That person has forfeited the assurance of salvation. Again, we're not condemning anybody, but we're, not, we're also not assuring anybody. <laughs> we're treating that person as a Gentile and hoping that the Holy Spirit is inside of that person, bringing that person to repentance. That's our hope. Now, I want you to see some things, and I know we're already over time, but again, why else are you here? You're here to study the Bible. So turn with me to chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul in several of his letters gives a list of vices that keeps someone from the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, one of the great phrases of the New Testament. Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That was their former lifestyle. They lived in all of those sins. They were that way, but now they are new. They are unleavened bread. Therefore, they are to live in a different way. Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians 5, Paul gives another list. He talks about the works of the flesh. And starting in verse 19, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, Paul wrote to that church, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Very serious sins. 
that lifestyle, that unrepentant lifestyle shows that that person doesn't know about God and His kingdom. Maybe mentally that person does, but not in that person's heart. That's what those actions show. And though we can never perfectly judge, we have to read the actions and respond, respond accordingly. You don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 5.5. 5. Ephesians 5.5 5 says this, For you know with certainty, okay, this isn't a probability thing, this is a certainty thing, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's a certainty that we have that no one who goes on living that life has any part in the kingdom of God. Then I want you to see these, 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Because the question then becomes, well, then do we just say to everyone who is, claims to be a Christian but goes on to live an unrepentant lifestyle, do we just say, we have certainty, you're not a part of the kingdom of God, and we'll just view you as an unbeliever and treat you as an unbeliever as you never were saved? Well, if a person has the confession of Christ and lives that way, then we have to practice church discipline, and that's different than dealing with a non-believer. That's dealing with the believer. And Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians 3.6. It says, um, oh, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3.6. We'll be uh, learning a different lesson if we're in 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. That you keep away from every brother. Anybody who claims to be a part of the family, the Christian family, yet lives that way, keep away. Drop down to verse 14. Paul gives more instruction. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Our relationship changes, not that we become enemies, but our conversations, if they occur, our conversations are centered around the issue. We don't pretend like the issue doesn't exist. But our conversations, if they occur, are about the issue, and our encouragement to the person is repentance. We admonish the person, correct the person from the Word of God because that person is bringing shame to the name of Christ. So this means as a church, at this step of church discipline, this means asking the person to stay away. We've invited you to leave. That's what happens at that stage. And Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes in verse 11 that we are not even to eat with such a one. Not even to eat. Those who we eat with, it says something about our associations, our fellowship, how we consider other people. If you were looking at the back of your bulletin today, or maybe sometime in the middle of this sermon as you were getting distracted, we have four announcements. All of the announcements have to do with eating. Can you imagine what the Southern Baptist bulletins look like? If that's from a non-denominational church, uh, the Southern Baptists who love to eat, what their bulletins look like. Don't want to throw shade on our Southern Baptist friends. Um, 
Eating says a lot as we get together and we associate with one another. Okay, stop looking at your bulletins. Everybody's looking at their announcements. Stop it. Look at the inside part. Oh, brother. As we eat together, we're affirming one another. Even if not in our hearts intentionally, we do something when we eat together. We affirm each other outwardly to those around us, to the world around us. We're affirming one another. And you can see by the construction of that command at the end of verse 11, not even to eat with such a one, this is an extreme measure to take. You remember how, how Peter, when he was away from the Jews, Peter would get together with the Gentiles and he'd sit with them and he'd eat. He'd have a bacon cheeseburger with the Gentiles. And then the Jews would show up and Peter would, would distance himself from them. He wouldn't sit with them anymore and he would cast them in a bad light so that the Jews would think more of him as he probably had, you know, a bacon crumb in his beard or something. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't do that. Um, eating with people said something. As the Jews saw that perhaps he was eating with Gentiles, that would have said to the Jews, well, he approves of them. He affirms them. And that's what happens when we eat together. We affirm one another. And in church discipline, if we are to disassociate, that means we stop eating together. And that hurts. It says much. It's our job to judge within the church, and we can't neglect that duty. John MacArthur has written, If the offenders will not listen to the counsel and warning of two or three other believers, and not even of the whole church, they are to be put out of the fellowship. They should not be allowed to participate in any activities of the church, worship services, Sunday school, Bible studies, or even social events. They should be totally cut off from both individual and corporate fellowship with other Christians, including that of eating together. No exceptions are made. Even if the unrepentant person is a close friend or a family member, he is to be put out. Hurts. Hurts. But that's the call of Scripture. And our goal through this is restoration that the Holy Spirit dwelling inside that Christian would bring about a pain because of their sin, their sin, that they would turn and be repentant. And if that person wants to come back with repentance, we welcome that person back. That person isn't barred for life. We don't, we don't say to that person, you're never welcome here again. But as long as that person is refusing to submit to the God we serve, yet claims the name of Christ... That person is not invited to be among us. That person is disassociated. Galatians 6.1, you don't have to turn there. Galatians 6.1 is an important verse. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. We're also to look out for ourselves that we won't be tempted as we do it. But you see the heart there. Be gentle. Seek to restore from that very first step in Matthew 18 when you approach somebody about his or her sin, do so with a spirit of gentleness, looking forward to restoration and repentance. And let that attitude carry over through every step, even when a person has to be put out of the church. Our heart should be for restoration. Last quote I'll read to you. The call to disassociate from the unrepentant believers is not an expression of hatred and bitterness, 
but it flows from love and from a desire for the one who is in sin to repent. Treating the person in sin as if nothing has changed misleads the one straying about the seriousness of the situation. Let's not mislead a brother or a sister. It'll hurt to be honest, but we have to be honest. That was Thomas Schreiner, a quote from Thomas Schreiner. To close with the final illustration, we've talked about a lump of dough and the leaven, but think too of the human body. White blood cells are amazing. We need white blood cells. And it's amazing how God has designed the body to heal itself, to take care of itself. If you ever watch one of those, uh, you know, kind of 3D simulations of what's going on in the body with white blood cells, it shows how they flow through the body and they are basically hunting out bacteria. They're hunting out disease. And what happens is the white blood cell can suck into itself a disease, a bacteria. And within, inside the cell, that bacteria is destroyed. It goes along and it like vacuums up that in our body that could destroy us, that could really harm us. And it's an amazing thing. Yet there are times when, for a variety of reasons, a person's body isn't working that way. And perhaps there aren't any white blood cells, perhaps there are, but that disease is just not having an impact. And in some cases, a doctor might remove, if it's a, an isolated uh, infection, if it's bacteria of a certain tissue, a doctor may recommend removing that tissue. Well, in our day-to-day Christian life, our normal Christian living, we are white blood cells for each other. We walk around and in love, care for one another, concern for one another. If we see someone is caught in a trespass, we come along and gently confront that person, and we seek to help that person to be released from the bondage of that sin that that sin could be destroyed in their lives, that person could be healthier spiritually. That's our desire for one another. And there are times as we go around in the body as these white blood cells seeking to make the church healthy, to help the church be healthy, that certain infections, certain bacteria, it's just not healing. It's not working. And the instruction that we get from the New Testament is if a person refuses to change, then that person needs to be removed. The body needs surgery at that point, and the person must be removed from among us. If you know, have known somebody in your life who was dealing with a serious sickness but refused to go to the doctor, that's the same as a church body refusing to address the infection. We can't, as a church, refuse to do this. It's for the health of the body. It's for the reputation of Christ. And just as Israel was called to remove the wicked people among them. That's the end of this chapter. An Old Testament verse, remove the wicked man from among you. So the church is to remove the wicked from among ourselves, hoping for repentance. It's a serious thing, but we're called to do it. Father, thank you for this teaching. Give us humble hearts that we would not only seek to be faithful to you as a church in removing the unrepentant sin from among us, but that we would be humble in receiving confrontation if we need it, that we would change, that we would be ready to repent and admit our faults and our shortcomings and our rebellion. Give us soft hearts through the gospel, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.